Amoti lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Bore Pri Hagafen. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. If you would uh, turn in your Bibles now to the book of Exodus, to chapter 30, we're going to begin at about verse 11. Uh, this Sabbath, our Torah portion is entitled Kitese, and it is in the continuation. We're in the portions of the book of Exodus where we're talking about the building and construction of the tabernacle. However, this one particular portion seems to take a break from that subject. It seems to recount some particular instructions and recount a historical event that has actually happened earlier uh, than the construction of the tabernacle. And uh, it's the story of where it explains to us the golden calf, the sin of the golden calf. And as I shared before, um, the Torah is not laid out completely as a sequence. It's not a narrative. There are parts that are narrative, but the whole book is not laid out as a narrative. It's laid out in a manner so that Moses can give key teachings at key moments. And the reason why we're going to shift from what appears to be the dominant subject of the construction of the tabernacle to these particular things is because these things do have things to do with the tabernacle. Uh, let me explain very briefly. As I've shared with you before, um, the construction of the tabernacle seems to have been a plan, according to the sages, that wasn't the preferred plan of God. That God really, what he wanted to do when he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, uh, to bring them to the mountain, give them the Torah, and that he wanted to actually give us the gift of the Holy Spirit right there, and that he would dwell with us in our own hearts and so forth. But because of the sin of the, our ancestors, because we turned so quickly away from the Lord, even as Moses was on the mountain getting the tablets, 
uh, to be given to us, that uh, that the Lord said, no, uh, they're immature and they need additional instruction. And so part of the idea of building the tabernacle was to illustrate first how God wanted to dwell with us. We would learn from that. And then when the Messiah came, he would build the permanent tabernacle in the hearts of his people. Well, interestingly enough, this is exactly the message that we get from the Messiah when he came that uh, part of the instruction is that he came to build the tabernacle in us. He gave us the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, just like the Spirit of God, the glory of God resided within the tabernacle. And so we get a tabernacle inside of us, and it's modeled or pictured after the tabernacle that was built in the wilderness. Now, we've got that as a basic context, so let's now examine what this portion says, because it gives some instructions about some things for the tabernacle. But then, as I said, it goes into the story about the sin of the golden calf and really talks about narrative events that took place and how Moses will get the second set of tablets. The first set will be broken because of the golden calf, how he gets the second set that will be a part of the tabernacle. So with that said, uh, join me first as we look at... um, the first part of our portion in chapter 30, beginning at verse 11, it reads, The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. You will number them that there may be a, may not, may may be no plague among them when you number them. That is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is the 20 geras, half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. So let me explain that right off the bat. For some reason, God has given this very powerful instruction that says that he does not want his people to be numbered by how many noses they have or how many heads show up or how many faces show up, that He feels that is a demeaning thing that is done to us. And by the way, that's one of the expressions when we talk about we feel demeaned is, oh, I've just become a number. You know, if an organization treats you not as a human being anymore, they just treat you as a number, uh, we, we consider that a demeaning thing. Well, the Lord went so far as to say that when you take a census of the people, don't count the people. Instead, have every person gather a half shekel. And they will give a half shekel. Then we count the half shekels. We count coins, but we don't count persons. And uh, it's a very intriguing uh, concept. The Lord insisted on it. David, King David, made this mistake in his lifetime. He went out and numbered all of Israel, and he got in big, big trouble with the Lord. Uh, and this is the that's what led to... Um, David going and purchasing the the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, to build the permanent altar to actually build the temple in the land. It it came about as David committing the sin of numbering the people instead of taking the half-shekel donation. So what did they do with all this silver, all these half-shekels? Well, uh, it was part of the, uh, the silver that was melted down and actually became part of the construction materials of the tabernacle. All of the attaching parts, the vast majority of attaching parts, were made of silver. Sockets were made of silver, and things in the outer court were all of silver. 
and silver, a shekel, was considered to be the shekel of the temple or the shekel of the tabernacle. In other words, if you made a donation, you were to make a donation with the shekel uh, or of silver uh, to the treasuries of the temple. And if you recall, there in Jerusalem, they used to have money changers. So if you came in with your foreign monies, well, you would exchange to get the shekel of the temple uh, and you would get the silver coins that you would donate then into the treasuries uh, for it. So anytime a census was called for, required, they were required to give the half shekel. Uh, and that was the way God's people would be. Then we would get a census of, of the nation at that point, not from the actual counting of noses and people. It goes on to then explain about the construction of the laver. If you look down a little bit further in verse 16, it talks about the laver of bronze. Actually, we think the bronze was more copper-based, and in particularly in the case of the laver, they used the mirrors of the women, and they were usually copper that were highly polished, and they bound them together and to make. And so the laver um, was, when you came up to it, you could clearly see your reflection. And there's a huge spiritual lesson about uh, coming to the laver to wash your hands and your feet in which that you see the reflection of yourself. And one of the spiritual lessons that uh, we have to teach people when it comes to coming before the Lord to repent is that you have to be able to have a, 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 a good perspective of yourself. You have to be able to understand who you are, what you have done, take responsibility for yourself. And looking in a mirror is when we process the information of who we are and how we appear to others. Um, and um, the labor was performed a very important function uh, in that, that when the priests would come, they had to look at themselves and make sure that they were proper and ready to do the job of priest and those that would come and present and so forth, that they would have a labor for washing. The whole concept of washings uh, as a religious ritual. And by the way, coming up on Passover, we have some designated washings as part of the ritual ceremony of observing the Passover. Again, all of those are for the purpose of us um, examining ourselves and to present ourselves properly uh, before the Lord. The next thing topic it moves into is another consumable, and it deals with the prescription uh, and the recipe for the spices uh, for the making the incense. And there's a very specific uh, formula given here. And no one is permitted to make that same incense. It's only to be made by the priests, only for the use of um, used in the temple service. And the same thing in verse 25, it goes into a recipe for the holy anointing oil. There's lots of anointing oils, but there's only one that is specifically to be used with the temple. And there is a prohibition that no one is to make that exam, same oil for other uses. This is the oil that's strictly to be used um, in, in and associated with the temple. One of the, um, in my personal testimony, one of the first things the Lord ever instructed me to do when I started Lion and Lion Ministries, and it was a little bit surprising to me, um, was he told me to make anointing oil. Now, when Lion and Lion Ministries started many years ago, this is the Torah portion that was that week. 
And I had a moment with the Lord where I'd gone through the Torah portion and I was still praying and asking the Lord what were the first things he wanted me to do in the ministry. What, you know, I wanted to get off on the right foot. Let's do what the Lord wants to do with this ministry. Didn't have anything going at all. We're just, we're there, we're started. What do you want to do, Lord? How do you want to do it? And he basically said to me, I told you to make anointing oil. And I was like, you did? I said, well, yeah, out of the Torah portion. It, it. And so I had to go and investigate what in the world is anointing oil and how do you really make it? And I discovered that anointing oils are made from essential oils. And essential oils is a very common thing in this world. You can take all manner of things, organic things, and you can extrapolate certain essential oils out of them. In fact, it's a whole industry, and, and it's called the work of the perfumer. And perfumes are really blends of essential oils is really what they are. And um, the base oil that was used was anointing oil, but then they had these other kind of what I call exotic essential oils that were done to it. If you look at the instructions there, there are four items. Verse 25, it says, you shall make of these holy anointing oil a perfume mixture. The work of a perfumer, it shall be holy anointing oil. And with it, you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the, the ark of the covenant and so forth. Anyways, it goes into, it's verse 24 that explains some of the stuff that goes into it. Cassia, uh, and olive oil and frankincense and other things that goes into this oil. There's four things that are listed. So what I did, you know, since the Lord told me to make anointing oil, I learned about this and, you know, I'm praying and I said, now how in the world am I going to get these essential oils? I mean, I'm assuming that they're going to be very exotic things. You have to look in the world to go find them because that's and sure enough, there was, uh, I found a company that sold anointing oils that was out of New York, kind of on a world thing. And crazy of crazy things, there was also an office in Oklahoma City that sold them. So here I was in Oklahoma, and I went down to this office in Oklahoma City, and I had access to all of the essential oils of the entire world. You know, Sudanese frankincense and all these different things from all these different places and exotic things and so forth. And I was able to basically go right down there with a the recipe and I say, well, I want this, I want this, I want this. And they said, sure enough. And the now I changed one ingredient. Remember I told you the exhortation of that you're not to make exactly the same. So I changed one ingredient and I proceeded to then blend them and to come up with what is the right mixture to have the perfume and it to be an anointing oil. And I did, I, I made some anointing oil. In fact, it's been uh, one of the longest standing products Lionel Lamb Ministries uh, produced. And by the way, I'm not putting a plug in that everybody needs to go buy this anointing oil. I'm just, I'm just giving you some history here of how it fits into the scripture. Uh, but if you wanna buy some, will you contact the uh, office? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I said that for the benefit of the staff, you know. The, um, but it was a fragrant oil, and it was delightful. And so I proceeded to make some and bottle it uh, for others. And I bottle it in little one-ounce bottles for the folks if they want an anointing oil. And it's somewhat based on this recipe, but it's not exactly uh, this recipe, since I'm prohibited from making the temple anointing oil. 
But it is an anointing oil. It's not an oil you'd want to put with food or whatever. It's for the purpose of anointing. Well, once I made the oil and I had completed the task, I sat down with the Lord and I said, okay, Lord. I said, that's great. Um, You know, you spoke to me. You told me that's the first task. But if you don't mind, Lord, could you kind of explain to me why we just did that? You know, because I come out of a predominantly Baptist background, and we don't go around anointing a lot of people a lot, a lot of times. You know, I, I have anointed people with straight olive oil when they were sick, and we prayed for them, and we were fasting. I've done those kinds of things, but it hasn't been, shall we say, a dominant thing in my ministry. I've been more into teaching and uh, doing the work of the ministry, not so much going around anointing people. And so then I said, Lord, if you don't mind, why did we do that first as a messianic ministry uh, to, to do this? And he basically came back and gave me a reference, and he said, we did this to prepare for the Great Tribulation. And I want to show you the verses he showed me uh, concerning uh, that. Um, going to Isaiah chapter 61, uh, these were words that were read by the Messiah in a synagogue in his hometown. He was asked to stand and read from the prophets once uh, in the synagogue service. And in chapter 61 of Isaiah, he read from the scroll of Isaiah these words, first verse. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And at that moment, the Lord closed the scroll, sat it down, sat down before the people and said, these words have been fulfilled within your hearing. And they were all in shock. This is a passage where the Messiah directly from Scripture says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the anointed one. Because this is the work of the Messiah, is to do all of these things. Bring good news to the afflicted, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. In other words, to proclaim redemption. Um, And he spoke only those words and said they had been fulfilled in that day that he spoke. Now, if you recall, the people were taken back by that. They said things like, isn't this the... Isn't this the son of uh, Joseph the carpenter? I mean, who, how, how can he be the Messiah? What, what's going on here? And they wanted to kill him. They actually took him out to the brow of a hill, thought they were going to throw him off of a hill, and he snuck out, and he got away from him uh, from that. Very powerful passage of Scripture that ties directly to the Messiah and his first coming. But that's not the conclusion of all of what Isaiah spoke. If you continue from where the Messiah concluded... The subject shifts to the things about the day of the Lord, the end of the ages. Here's what it says. Verse 2 in the middle, and the day of vengeance of our God. To proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. That will be done in the last days. So there's some people going to come who've been anointed, who are doing the work, same work that the Messiah did, who will also proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Now, watch what it says that they do. To comfort all who mourn, 
to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. When you give somebody a garland, you announce them as the champions and the winners. To proclaim you are the champions, you are the winners. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. All of a sudden we have some oil that is to be presented to people who are mourning. The mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. Now, the talit that I had on when we began the service and did the kiddish, did you know one of the names for that is called the mantle of praise? It's a talit, a mantle of praise. And to put a mantle of praise on them instead of the spirit of fainting. Now, let's go back to the oil of gladness. Anointing oil is used for a variety of things. Ordination of people who begin their service to God for healing. But one of the things that says here that there is an oil, a reason for anointing of oil, is gladness for those instead of mourning. One of the things the Lord very emphatically told me that why we made this oil was in the days of the great tribulation, it will be exhausting. Um, as I've said before, when you escape, you survive and endure, there's nothing comforting or comfortable about those words. It's obviously an environment that's draining. It's an environment that is a struggle to do it. And as you all know, depending on the will and the fortitude of the individuals, we're all at different levels. Some people, this will be overwhelming to them. And when the day comes that they have come to the end of themselves, they just have no more strength. They have, they're just at loss for everything. What do we do for them? What can we possibly do for them? Well, he made me anointing well. To, when they come to me and say they can't do it anymore, and I say, oh, i got something for you. I'm going to anoint you with the oil of gladness, that the Lord will lift you up beyond your strength, and, and anoint you to the task of something that you couldn't have done in your own strength. And so that could be a, literally, I consider that kind of a last-ditch thing to keep heart and soul, you know, together, to continue on with the Lord, be faithful to the Lord for the days of the Great Tribulation. That's basically what he told me, that that's what that oil was for, that I was to make that oil, have it on hand, and the day would come when we would use that as the oil of gladness. Uh, for the brethren in days future. So I thought I'd just kind of share that as a sidebar. That's some of the offspring of me studying this Torah portion and learning about anointing oil, what has happened with me with regard to it. Anointing oil obviously carries a great, great significance to us along with the incense and was used part of the service in the temple. All the priests were anointed. If you remember, uh, Aaron, when he was anointed, the oil was so immense upon his head, it ran down and dripped through his beard, and they considered that, that process to be glorious, uh, to be extremely holy uh, event that was taking place. So as we go along a little bit further, you see more detail on the recipe for the spices at the end of the chapter. And then we get to chapter 31. Again, we're still talking about some of the tabernacle. We again mention uh, and introduce Bezalel, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, he's going to be the chief craftsman for a lot of the things. The other, um, Oliav, will be the other craftsman from the tribe of Dan that uh, God has granted them skill 
and so forth for them to help make the elements of the tabernacle and to do all of those things. Then suddenly uh, we have another topic that shifts and we come to verse 12 of chapter 31 where all of a sudden it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you, therefore you to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Um, it, if you remember the liturgy, that we did this evening's service, the same liturgy we do every week when we have an Arab Shabbat service, we actually quote from these verses. And we remind everyone that the Sabbath is a sign between us and God. Now, I want you to get the context of this for a moment. When did this particular instruction, and precisely when was it given? It was given in sharp contrast to the two named expert craftsmen who made the tabernacle elements. So we have these named individuals who are going to make these incredibly beautiful things for the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the table, the menorah, all of the elements of the tabernacle, and, and explains about the making of the incense, the anointing oil, all of these wonderful things that will be a part of that tabernacle worship service. But then it hits this contrast statement, verse 13, but as for you, in other words, that's a contrasting statement. It says, I'm not talking about those skilled craftsmen, the things they're doing on the tabernacle. I'm now talking about another group. And as for you, this is what I want from you. And he essentially goes right into the instructions of observing the Sabbath. And our participation in the tabernacle service. Our participation in coming to worship the Lord as a community. Now, inside the tabernacle are many beautiful things. They all symbolize very powerful things, all things of the Lord. But quite honestly, they're meaningful, meaningless, unless the people come in to worship the Lord. And so he calls for us to come, and the predominant assembly time that we have as brethren of faith is the Sabbath day. If we fail to observe the Sabbath, then essentially what we're saying is, like the mercy seat is of no value to us. The table of showbread is of no value to us. The menorah is of no value to us. The anointing oil is of no value to us. The, the sweet incense is of no value to us. Anointing oil is of no value to us. In other words, all the things that God has set up here to worship with are of no value to you because you don't even attend. Wow, that's a terrible statement to be making to the Lord. And that's the reason why you see it in very stark terms, using words like, if anyone profanes the Sabbath. I mean, we're talking about the difference between holy and profane. Now, you know, and God sets up a definition, holy and profane. He says, failing to observe the Sabbath as a part of the tabernacle and all of this way we worship the God is, is like profaning it. Now, I know a lot of people would be uncomfortable with that, but that's God's definition of it. 
It's not my definition. That's his definition. That's how he views uh, the subject. Now, we didn't realize our presence was that important. God thinks our presence is very important. Maybe we don't think our presence is very important. But he values us and sees us a whole lot more than we value and see ourselves. Remember I started off with the portion about the labor? You look upon yourself, you see yourself. Most people, when we look upon ourselves, we, we don't see things honorable. We don't see good things. We don't, we don't. Every time I talk about the Lord's coming back with his reward, where secretly we're all going, yeah, well, he's bringing a lot of reward for other people. There ain't going to be much in the bag for me. Because I haven't done anything. I'm, I'm nobody. I'm, I, I don't count. You remember he talked about the census? I don't count. Yeah, the Lord says you do count. You do have value. He sees you in a much different way than you see you. He's trying to get you to see yourself the way he sees you. I'm sure you've heard this expression before. He thinks you're valuable enough. <laughs> That he's willing to send his own son and die for you. That's how valuable he sees us. That's how precious we are to the Lord. If we can grasp that, if we can suddenly realize how God really does view us and how much he really loves us, the hope is, I mean, this is the, the science behind the teaching, is that you would be stirred, that you would be moved in your own heart to choose to follow the Lord, that if the Lord has accepted you in that way and values you in that way, that you're naturally drawn to him and you want to be a part of what he is about. But a lot of people don't believe that. They don't believe they have value. Uh, the world pretty much does a, a pretty good job of beating all of us up and convincing us that we're of poor value, that we're flawed, that we are not clean, we're dirty, you know, and, and, and tries to run us down. And, we're, and depression amongst believers is a very serious issue, and it has to do with the inability to see the value that God sees us in. If we could overcome that, if we could come to the point where we see the way the Lord sees us, sees our future, it sees his, we could see his intentions to do good to us, what he really would like to do with us, and they're all good, by the way, then maybe we would overcome these obstacles that are here in our mortal life, and we would begin to turn to the Lord and walk uprightly before him and be the people that we really are uh, for him. Um, we are... Uh, let, me, let me just go one statement forward. Do you know that there's a big conflict in the heavenlies over this? You know, we're a little lower than angels, but God has decided to choose us above the angels of heaven. And there was one particular angel, his name was Lucifer, he didn't like that. And he's in dispute with God because God decided to choose us over others. And part of the conflict we're in is because of God's gracious, wonderful choice of us. So this is a, this is a pretty big deal. And God's willingness to make a tabernacle and come and dwell with us is, in, I'm telling you, in the heavenlies, that's incredible.
That is incredible. You mean God would get off of his throne from beyond the stars and he wants to come down to this measly planet with these people and dwell with us? Um, that, that's incredible. And he chooses us in the midst of it. Part of the tabernacle experience, part of what we're doing in keeping his commandments and growing in our relationship with the Lord is to come to terms with who he really is and who we are. Now, having kind of laid that out, this is when Moses decides to go ahead and let's, let's examine this great sin that our fathers committed. So chapter 32, we find ourselves in the story of the golden altar, or the golden calf, I should say. Uh, chapter 32, beginning of verse 1, let me read for you a bit. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, and the people assembled about Aaron, and they said to him, Come, let us make a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Let me just tell you that the way this is explained in the Hebrew is they actually wounded themselves when they took the stuff off. I mean, when it says they tore it out of their ear, they literally tore their ear to get it out. That was how motivated they were to participate in making this golden calf. They literally wounded themselves to do this. Went out of their way to even harm themselves to get the gold for it. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is our God, O Israel, who brought you from the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offering and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I have commanded them. Uh, and, and have made themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why doth thou anger burn against thee thy people whom thou hast brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy burning anger and change thy mind about doing harm to thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants to whom thou didst swear by thyself, and did say to them, I will multiply your descendants on the stars of heaven and all this land of which I have spoken. I will give it to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to the people. Now before I go any further, um, 
I want to take you back to the words where they said in verse 5, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. That day that they made a feast to the golden calf is the same day on our calendar we call Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We are instructed on Yom Kippur, you will fast, you will not rejoice, you will not feast, you will not dance around, you will not go out and seek your pleasure, you will afflict your soul, you will be somber and quiet. That's the day the children of Israel decided to make the golden calf and go have a party. So, right off the bat, maybe the next time you keep Yom Kippur, maybe you'll remember, oh, this is the day when our ancestors did that. And maybe it'll be a guidance to you as to how you should properly keep Yom Kippur to do the opposite of what that is, to only hold to the Lord our God, the real God who brought us out of Egypt, not the phony God, the imitation God that we made up. Now, I have, I have uh, in the course of my lifetime, I've studied many teachers of this Torah portion, and there's, interestingly enough, there is um, a very interesting common commentary by a lot of sages of Israel, a lot of rabbis that teach about this portion, in which they say, they're trying to answer the question, why in the world did they do this? What in the world got into their head that caused them to do this? They had heard God's voice from the mountain. Moses had gone up on the mountain to receive uh, the Torah. They came down. He recounted it to him. He goes back up on the mountain again, this time to receive more instruction. And he's up there for the same period of time as he was before. It's 40 days. And 40 nights, and for some reason, all of a sudden, they get tired of waiting for him, and they say, hey, we don't know what happened to him. We don't know what happened to that God or what happened to, uh, you know. The pillar of the cloud by day of fire by night is still in the camp. Uh, the mountain is still on fire. You know, the mountain is still there, rumbling away. Moses went up there. Uh, we're waiting, and all of a sudden, something rose up and says, and man, you talk about a short-term memory. These guys just forgot what had just previously happened. Now, the rabbis say that the reason why the children of Israel did this is that while God had, in fact, freed all of them from Egypt, physically freed them from it, they were still slaves in their thinking. Inside, they still thought like slaves. And so they didn't know how to deal with the freedom that God was giving them. And by the way, laws is what makes us a free people. I don't know if you realize that or not, but the rule of law is what makes us free. And so we can enjoy freedom. If you don't have any laws, you have chaos in the land. There's no freedom for anybody. But if you have laws and everybody's agreed to the laws, that's the only way you can have freedom. So they had a taste of freedom. They were in the camp. They were free. Uh, and yet... They forgot all of this, and they walked away from it so quickly. 
Now, interestingly enough, they say, the sages say, say this, this of, of every generation. Every generation can commit this sin. Every generation, the community could rise up, forget all that the Lord has done before, forget all the lessons and instructions, fail to understand the freedom that we're enjoying, why, how, how it comes about we get to have freedom, and walk away from it and submit ourselves to be slaves to idolatry and all that comes with that, and incur the judgment of God. Every generation can do that. And it's a reoccurring issue with every generation. And in fact, every person has to wrestle with these things in their own personal life as well as we have to as a community come to terms with them. Now, you'll notice, and this is where some people actually have a little question about the character of God. They question the character of God where it says, verse 14, so the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now, I'm going to tell you something kind of strange about that. No, he didn't. What he did was he extended mercy for a little while. But on this issue about this sin and turning away from the Lord and walking away from freedom and, and uh, choosing to follow after other gods and put, enslaving yourself, he has never changed his mind on that. And not only do we have this historical Yom Kippur when this sin took place, but I have some news for you, brethren. When it comes to the subject of the day of the Lord and the day that God comes back and judges the whole world, guess what day that is? Yom Kippur. God has not changed his mind, so to speak, about his principles and what is right and the definition of life and death and so forth. All he did was delay the judgment. The judgment is always there. And in fact, we instruct that from the holiday of trumpets until we come to Yom Kippur, we call it the days of awe because we say God's eyes are moving to and fro over the earth, deciding who lives and who dies. And on Yom Kippur, he makes his decision. We give as an exhortation for leading up to that, and on Yom Kippur, may your name be found in the book of life. That's the exhortation. May you be found where God grants you life and not judgment and death. And by the way, by becoming believers in the Messiah, we get written in the Lamb's book of life. Our names are not blotted out. We have a sure guarantee that God's ultimate judgment does not come upon us. And this is the reason why that we say Yeshua is our atonement. Because we're not going to suffer what comes on Yom Kippur in the future. He has become our atonement. As a result, we're exempt from that future judgment of death that will come to the world. So the implications here in this particular um, story about the golden calf, you've heard me say this before, the, the things that happen in the wilderness, the, the, the whole Exodus story, that it's a pattern of future things. Let me tell you what the pattern is. 
that comes from the story. In the last generation, the generation that will experience the Great Tribulation, there's a whole lot of people that are going to come out of the nations and they're going to come, they're going to be in these days of the last generation and they're going to see what the Lord is doing here but aren't going to make it all the way to the end. And by that I mean the people who even claim that they are believers. And the reason is, is because they're going to fall prey to this sin. Because somebody else is going to rise up in the camp while we're waiting for the Lord return. And we're tired of waiting for the Lord return. I don't know where he went. I mean, you know, who knows where the Lord went? I mean, he went on a long journey. He has not come back. I mean, you know, we should get ourselves an, another Messiah. We should get ourselves another Savior. And that's exactly what the Antichrist will offer himself as. I'm, I'm the Lord of the whole earth. I'm the one who saves you. And he'll have a false prophet, and, and they'll spread the message. And guess what? This is really tragic. A lot of people who are calling themselves Christians right now will join in and make the same mistake our ancestors did coming out of Egypt, just like they did. Now, will it be the whole vast majority? No, of course not. It will be a powerful enough segment that it will sweep over the whole community and the whole world. Now, in truth, we believe that out of all of those, we estimate 3 million people that came out of Egypt, it was really 3,000 or so that really did this. But that 3,000 was sufficient to sway the 3 million. And we'll have the same thing come in the end of days. When it comes to the abomination of desolation, we will have people making the decision that came out of churches, not of the faith, to choose that. And prefer that. And if you don't think that such things can happen, I wish you could sit behind my eyeballs and see what I'm seeing right now in the world. Just take a look at the elections going on in the presidential elections of the moment. We have candidates running for the highest office of the land with a multitude of people supporting these different candidates. One of them is as corrupt as any politician has ever been in the history of the world, is known, has the testimony, the clear testimony of being a liar, and a whole bunch of people want to see that person become president and leader of the land. We've got another guy who absolutely, who has been in, in, in a part of the Congress, has not done one blessed thing as a representative of the people that he represents for 23 years. And he thinks the way the world should work is everything should be free. And so he's going out and making promises to the naive and telling him, oh, vote for me, and, and I'll, I'll make all your college education free, and I'll give you other freebies and goodies and so forth. And you know what? These are intelligent kids. I mean, they're going to school, but they are so dumb as to believe that. I mean, this is beyond the fable of the Pied Piper. I mean, this is 
utterly silly. Then on the other side of the other political spectrum, we've got these different candidates coming, and we've got a guy who's kind of leading everybody else, and he's a classic narcissist, self-willed, self-believes in himself, thinks he's the, he's the best slice of bread out of the whole loaf, and that everybody else is a loser and a liar. And we have Christians and Christian leaders calling for his election. And the other candidates, while occasionally announcing positive things about the Lord, and they seem to have testimonies of faith, there's still other things on the trappings of them that don't look so favorable. And this is not a case of where I have finally grown old enough that I'm getting sick of the world. This is a case that the world is that sick. The world is that sick. And our own nation, even good people. And so when you ask the question, how in the world could the camp of Israel, sitting at the base of Mount Sinai, be so caught up in the deception of the making of a, a golden calf to, to worship it, to bow down to it, to proclaim this is the God that brought us out of the land of Egypt. How in the world could such things happen, which is the exact opposite of truth, and everybody knows it if you just can think past earlier than 30 days. How could they do that? Well, I can tell you how they can do it. All you have to do is live in the days I live in. You can see people that are that dumb. And I'm talking about good people, my fellow citizens, my, my brethren. So I don't have a problem understanding how this can happen. And I take to heart the words of some of the previous rabbis who said, we need to be on guard because this can happen in any generation. Well, according to the pattern, this definitely is going to happen to the last generation. And I believe we're in the last generation, and I believe we're seeing the seeds of this exact same mistake to immediately turn away from the living God and choose idolatrous things and proclaim that to be God. And that's how we get our help. Now, Moses has comes down from the mountain. I'm sure you remember this part where he threw the tablets down and he called for all those that stood with him and the Lord and the Levites came over and they filled their swords and they went out and they slew 3,000 brethren, those who sacrificed to the... Uh, and by the way, the scripture emphatically says at the start of the Great Tribulation, judgment will come first to the household of faith and all those believers who participated in the abomination of desolation that shattering angels will go out with swords and slay them before the Great Tribulation really gets started. That's Ezekiel chapter 9. And the first judgment of the Great Tribulation is on the household of faith, which is in the same pattern of what Moses came down and did here. Uh, that was probably a pretty scary night when Moses and others went around with their swords, and it will be a very scary event at the start of the Great Tribulation, those who participate in the abomination of desolation in the last generation. I want to examine, though, the dialogue that takes place between Moses and Aaron when Moses goes to Aaron and says, what the heck happened? Because Aaron 
played a very important part in this thing. He's the one who actually formed and made the, the molten calf. Um, and uh, you're also going to hear about Bezalel, who was the son of uh, the grandson of Hur. Hur was a figure of a man that was mentioned before. He was the guy that stood on the other side of Moses holding up his arms when they were battling Amalek the first time in the wilderness. But you never hear of her ever again after that event. We believe that it's at this event that immediately when the people began to rebel, get out of control, that her stood up and objected to the rebels that were doing this and they summarily slew him immediately. Aaron saw the death of her so quickly. And this is the reason why he actually turned and cooperated with him. This is the real reason why he did it, was that it, if he had objected, they'd have slain him. So for his own self-preservation, he participated with it. So with that in mind, as a background, let us read here now um, a little bit further. Verse 21, chapter 32. Then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself that they are prone to evil. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man you, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we did not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. They gave it to me, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. I love this explanation. I really didn't form the calf. I threw the gold in the fire, all of a sudden the calf popped out. That reminds me a little bit of like a little boy would explain to his mom how something happened that he's responsible for. I really didn't do it, Mom. It's just I, I was there, and all of a sudden it happened. Yeah, I didn't even touch it. Yeah, have you heard those kind of explanations and so forth? It's in, the, it's in that vein of defensiveness. And I've always, there are parts of the Bible that are funny. And I think that's one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. In fact, when we get to the kingdom, I intend to have a conversation with Aaron about this. You know, and say, Aaron, that's the funniest thing I ever heard you say. You know, well, the calf just popped up out of the fire, you know. Yeah, so... Um, the, uh, you know, one of the things that came out of this was that, that um, the Lord also wanted to judge the whole people at that point. And Moses, of course, argued uh, for their defense. And, but then when Moses comes down there, he's pretty angry himself. Broke the tablets. He, he took a sword and joined with the Levites. You know, that's pretty serious righteous indignation uh, that transpired. Well, in the aftermath, um, the Lord said, okay, that's it. Look, you guys go ahead and go to the promised land. Forget it. I ain't going with you. That one really speaks to me about the disgust the Lord had for the people at that point. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but um, there's been some times in my life where I've um, gone in and requested something from somebody, family members, friends, whatever, and it turns into a giant hassle. You know, uh, they agree to do it, but at the same time, they complain about having to do it, and, and it's, it, it's the whole thing, you know, it started out just as a simple request, hey, I just would, you know, and then the whole thing turns into this disgusting mess, 
And I find myself coming to that point where I say, forget it. I never asked for it. I don't want it. Well, we're making it. No, I don't want it. I don't want anything to do with it. You know, it's just you've made it to the point where there's no beneficial value to me anymore. And here's the Lord who wants to dwell with his people. And we took him to the point where he said, look, I, I know who you are. Why don't you go ahead and go in? I promise you the promised land. Go ahead. You can take the promised land. Go on. But I am not going with you. You know, you, you just go do it. Forget it. I, I don't want to be with you people. And there comes a moment here where Moses says, look, it's not worth it. If, if you're not going to be part of us, it, it, there's no reason for us to leave this wilderness. And what it really comes down to is, is that we all need to come to a certain point in spiritual maturity that if the Lord is not going to be part of your life, if you're not going to get to do it with the Lord, it's not worth living. It's not worth doing. I'll only go forward if you're with me, Lord. There's no reason for me to leave the place I'm in if you're not going to go with me. It's just not, not a good enough reason to leave. We're it. So let's get it square. I'm with you. You're with me. And then we're, we can go forward. And it is a point of spiritual maturity where you come to that point where you realize there is no choice but to walk with the Lord. King Solomon came to that choice. If you read his book, Ecclesiastes, he goes through a whole series of chapters telling you all about life. He gets down to the most powerful two verses probably in the whole Bible, and he says, look, let's look at the whole matter. The whole thing is the only thing worthwhile here that's not vain is to obey the Lord, keep his commandments, and walk with the Lord. That, that's it. There's nothing else worth it. Can you imagine living for eternity without God? What's the point? Well, people who go to hell, that's what's going to happen to them. They're going to live for eternity without God. And that all by itself is hell. We will get to live with him. And that, by definition, is life. That's what it comes down to. It's illustrated for us in this dialogue with the Lord. And this is what stirs um, Moses to say, Lord, I want to see your glory. I need to get to know you better. And so he begs the Lord for the opportunity to go up and get another set of, of tablets. And we have this story here in chapter 33 where he comes up to the mountain, stands, and God prepares the place. There's a, there's a crack in the rock. It's called a cleft in the rock. There's a place where he can insert Moses, where Moses' uh, vision is restricted. In other words, he can't look to the right or the left. He can only look straight forward. He puts him in that place, and then the very presence of God comes to him. Puts, God puts his hand over the face of Moses to block his view and then turns and allows him to see the backside of him. This is an incredible moment between God and men, where God reaches out to him personally and responds to his personal request to see the glory of God, to know God for this. 
And it all comes down to the point where we have God speak and describe God. And in Ezekiel chapter, uh, excuse me, uh, Exodus chapter 34, we come to these verses um, in 6 and 7, and here's essentially what the Lord says of himself. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And Moses made low to bow low toward the earth and worship. Then Moses responds in verse 9, and he says, If now I have found favor in thy sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are obstinate, and do thou pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as thy own possession. You talk about some very powerful words in all of the scripture. First of all, this is God describing God. This is not a man describing God. This isn't theology. This is as powerful as God speaking from Ten Commandments. This is God describing God. And in this description, whether you counted it up or quite realize it, he described 13 things about himself. Now, most people, when you go through and you describe this, you look for the list, you end up with a list of about 10 things. But there are 13. Let me explain to you why there's 13 things. The first words, the Lord, the Lord God, are the first three things. The first three characteristics of God. The Lord, the Lord God, are three characteristics of God. It illustrates God's mercy, God's justice, and in there, you find this is one of the instances where God presents himself in the form of three. Directly, specifically. He, he didn't start off with the words, I am one God and I am compassionate. No. He described himself as having three parts. He spoke all three of them. Um. This is also kind of a watchword for how leaders are to deal with what we call recurring sin or recurring error. Take the case of um, at Camp Yeshua. We have kids who come, and by the way, sometimes the kids have a little bit of rebellion where they're coming from, and they like to break the rules. First time they break the rule, we say, hey, you've broken the rule but we're going to show mercy to you. Second time he breaks the rule, we say, hey, you broke the rule again, but we're going to show mercy to you. Third time they break the rule, hey, you broke the rule again, now you're going to get justice. Because the word Lord emphasizes mercy, the word God emphasizes justice. And that sets a, a, a kind of a rule 
on how God deals with us, and by the way, how I think that we should deal with reoccurring error that comes into our lives. If you have a friend who makes a mistake, forgive. He makes the same mistake again, forgive. Makes the same mistake the third time, this guy, this isn't by accident. This guy deserves justice now. You should end it. You should bring it to a conclusion. Uh, that's the nature of what the Lord is saying here uh, in this structure. By the way, I won't go into it right now, but let me just hint it. I'm, every time I say that, I have to be careful because people will get all incentivized. Well, Monty, where's that study? Uh, go back and do some other study. But these 13 attributes of God, turns out there are 13 basic sacrifices of the altar service, and they mirror these 13 attributes of God, that the altar service is constructed as the table of the Lord to bring about unity between God and man. And part of the unity is the man has to conform to the things of God. And so the altar service is actually constructed off of these attributes uh, that come from the Lord. But I also, as the last thought here, I, I want you to take note of this prayer that Moses offered to us. Most of us, uh, in the course of our spiritual walk, we have come to that moment where we've called upon the Lord and asked for forgiveness, and we've asked to accept the Lord and to begin to walk with the Lord and ask to receive the promises of God, forgiveness of sin, the gift of eternal life, and so forth. We've actually, part of our experience in getting to know the Lord is to, is to do that. And sometimes they call that the sinner's prayer. If you're leading someone to the Lord, you're trying to bring them to this moment where they call upon the name of the Lord and ask for these things. This is the one and only verse in all of Scripture where the sinner's prayer is at. Moses prayed this prayer for all of Israel. For all of us. Now, what we do is we just affirm the same prayer but on a personal level. God's already set the system up to where if we come into his presence, we'll be overwhelmed by his glory, we'll be humbled, and in that humble moment, we'll reach out to the Lord and we'll say, Lord, would you please forgive me? Lord, would you please take me? I, I, would you come in? Would you dwell with me? Would you be a companion with me? Would you be with me so as I go through the rest of my life, you'll be with me? And will you make me your possession? Will you make me part of your kingdom in the future? Sinner's prayer. It's right there, given by Moses. I love it when I get to talk to some of the, my fellow Baptist pastors who think the law went away. And I get to explain to them, you know where the sinner's prayer comes from? It comes from right from the law when Moses got the second set of tablets. You know, that second set of tablets, you know, the ones that God has written his commandments on the tablets of our heart. You know, the new covenant one where you have to go to the mountain, experience God, and you've got to get a set of tablets written, and you've made that prayer. You'd have to do the same thing Moses did here. That's how we come to know the Messiah. It's exactly the same thing. Very powerful when you think about that and consider out of the Torah, hey, we're having an altar call in the new covenant faith. That's where it comes from, right here from this passage. All right, that is our portion for this week. Our time is up. Thank you for joining us for this Arab Shabbat service. I pray that the instruction of the Torah this week was encouraging to your faith.
and helped you to remember to keep the Sabbath holy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the Torah, for this portion. And I thank you, Lord, for your many, many blessings that you give to us. I ask, Lord, that you would make the words of the Torah alive in our lives and make it real for us. And Lord, do not let us go any further in our life without your presence with us. It's in vain to live this life without you. We ask you, Lord, to be a part of our lives. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.